If you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to John chapter 15. We are nearing the end of our walk through the entire gospel book of John in a series called Follow Jesus. In John chapter 15 and verse 5, heading straight there, Jesus makes an incredible statement. He says, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. He says, if you abide in me, then you will bear much fruit. We're going to walk through this whole passage here this morning. Um, thinking about spiritual fruit, thinking about when Jesus enters our lives, the changes and the power, the amazing things that he does, and, and the Bible uses this illustration of fruit, that fruit is born out of the true vine. Um, I found out last week, I was told that two of our young people, two of our kids in the church um, prayed to receive Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. That is some of the spiritual fruit that we long for and that we pray for. Later on that afternoon, another family reached out to me and let me know that their son had also prayed to receive Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. And guys, that is absolutely what it is all about. Amen? We thank God for spiritual fruit. It's not us. We are the ones who are connected to the true vine. Um, humanly speaking, we thank God for parents who know they're not perfect, but they love Jesus and they love the gospel and they love their kids and they want their kids to know the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And so we share the good news with our family, our children, our friends, and our city because we know that heaven has plenty of room and we want to see more and more people come to know him as Savior. And earthly speaking, we know that the gospel is the good news that brings dead people to life, that gives us new life and eternal life in Christ. And so Jesus is going to tell us all the more clearly here this morning what the source of that is. And we, we pray. We beg God, even every Sunday morning, that, that we as a church, that New City, would be a part of, a vibrant and ongoing part of the discipleship and the conversion of our children and of our entire city. Let's take a minute and let's pray, and then we're going to walk through John 15. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much that you are the vine, Lord. Uh, we could never handle being the vine. We thank you, though, that you have grafted us in, that you have made us your branches. And so, Lord, as we read your word this morning, knowing that Jesus, that you yourself are the very word of God, come down. Father, connect us to you and to your heart and to your passion this morning in a fresh way. That, Lord, by your grace and your strength and your power, Lord, that we too might bear fruit. Father, that we might be used to bring glory to your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three ways this morning, guys, that we branches can bear fruit when we are connected to the vine that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one that we're going to see here in a second from verses one through three is this. Believe in Jesus, the true vine, and the Father who prunes those he loves. Both of those ideas Jesus gives us right up front. Look at verses one through three with me. Jesus speaking to his disciples and to us. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus is the true vine, and what he's saying is that he is the true vine, the I am above any and every other vine that we might attach ourselves to. And this is a very loaded statement for the people who are hearing this interaction. He's speaking to Israel. Because interestingly enough, the grapevine was one of the many symbols of the nation of Israel, of God's Old Testament covenant people, Israel. In fact, on the gates of the temple, there was a golden grapevine that was a visual reminder that we as, or Israel was God's people. In many ways, that grapevine symbol was to Israel um, what we as Americans think of when we think of the stars and stripes. And what Jesus is saying here as he is walking with his disciples and maybe even saw that grapevine on the gates of the temple. We don't know, but it could, they could have seen that, or perhaps they were walking uh, and actually saw a vineyard nearby. As that visual image was being portrayed, perhaps, Jesus is saying to his disciples, while leaving the upper room where the Last Supper has just taken place, and walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will in a few hours be betrayed, Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. This is the seventh and the final I am statement or I am promise that we see in the Gospel of John. This is the last one. I am the true vine. And what he is saying here is, you know how Israel is a vine and that they were supposed to bear fruit. He's saying, I am the fulfillment. I am the fulfillment of all that that symbol anticipates. Jesus is the true vine, and all other vines, if you will, were ultimately just shadows. What that means for us, this is a reminder that everything in the Old Testament is leading us to Jesus. From the very beginning to the very end. So the sacrificial system, the festivals, the temple building itself, the Ten Commandments, all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus, the great I Am. And it is certainly clearly yet another statement Jesus is making to us that he is himself God. And the message that he wants to communicate, these final few words with his followers, is that true followers should and will bear fruit when they are tied to the life-giving vine that is Jesus. Notice too that in these final moments, Jesus' thoughts are not of himself, but even as he knows he is walking to his own death, his concern, his words, and his heart are for his people, are for his followers. And he, in the very first sentence, tells us, I am the true vine, and then he tells us about his Father. He tells us about God the Father, and he says that the Father will prune those that he loves. Now, what's important here is what Jesus will go on to tell us is that it is the branches that are doing well, that will be pruned. It is the branches that are bearing fruit or are demonstrating that they are ready to bear fruit. Those are the ones that the Father is going to prune. Pruning is always certainly unpleasant, whether we think about the vine itself or we think about in our own lives, God the Father lovingly pruning us. It is uncomfortable, but it is always good for the branches. Pruning 
of grapevines will produce healthy fruit. We know, uh, in fact, that a grapevine is not supposed to even be allowed to bear fruit until it has been pruned for three full years, three full seasons, that even when the vine may demonstrate that it is ready to bear fruit, that a loving gardener will continue to cut off those new shoots and allow it to be ready to do its best to bear fruit. Now you think about that, you think about cutting things off and this language of pruning and thinking about God and his relationship to us, his people. And thinking about this metaphor of the vine, if you don't know anything about being a gardener or about vines and vineyards, which I will confess outside of studying the commentaries and the word this week, I don't know much about vines or tending vineyards. But if you don't know a whole lot about vineyards and you see the gardener pruning, you will think that this is both mean and wasteful of this gardener to be cutting off new growth on the vine, wouldn't you? How much more then for us as people, if we don't understand who God the Father is and how He works, if we don't trust Him to do what He is, that when we see Him pruning in our lives, we will think, that's mean, God. That's wasteful, God. Why would you prune me? I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. That is our natural heart's inclination, but the solution is to trust that the Father is who He says He is, and that when He prunes, it is always for our good, even when it is uncomfortable. The Father prunes because He loves. Whether that be hard lessons in your life, or challenging times that you certainly did not plan for or expect, or even being literally cut away from sinful temptations in your life. Listen to the way that David expresses this exact truth to us in the Old Testament. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in all of Scripture, verse 67 and then verse 71. David says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. David understands that the affliction is from the Father, and though it was clearly uncomfortable, we don't know what it was, we just know he didn't like it. He's saying, after the fact, now I can see that my Father pruned me and it was for my good. Because what the Father does for us is always for our good. Good, because he's a perfect father. Do not miss what an incredible promise that is. See in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It feels painful because it is painful, but the Bible tells us that ultimately God's pruning, the Father's pruning, is pleasant. And it brings peace. So whether it's hard lessons or failures or bumps and bruises or having your bad habits stripped and cut away or your priorities reordered, they are lovingly and sovereignly sent by the Father and you can trust Him. I think many people who are interested in Jesus, who are considering Jesus, will walk away when this reality hits because when difficult times come, they refuse to believe that God is doing something good in hard times. 
We don't like being uncomfortable. None of us do. But the goodness of knowing the Father personally is knowing that he has redeemed every circumstance for your good and that he personally is the one who is pruning you. Sometimes it's a sin, sometimes it is not. I remember uh, in my wife and I's own life, six years ago, we sought to plant a church up in Rockledge, a half an hour north of here. Ultimately, it was a failure. We didn't like that in the moment. It was uncomfortable. It was challenging. But we trusted the Lord through it. Not perfectly, but we trusted Him. And God has brought us here. He has given you us. He has given me, you. Thank you, Lord. He was pruning us. He was pruning many of you in this room who were with us five, six years ago. I trust him. I don't like it, but I trust him. He's good. And then Jesus ends with this interesting comment where he he gives us once again the clear foundation of the gospel in this entire discussion when he says, already you are clean because of the word. Note the order in which the gospel of Jesus Christ works. True saving relationship with Jesus comes first as a vine or as a branch on the vine. Pruning by the Father to produce abundant fruit or, or good works comes second. That is the gospel order. Jesus is the word. Jesus himself brings cleansing. He is our savior. Ephesians chapter 5, it describes Jesus cleansing the bride, that is the church of Jesus Christ, by the word, the washing of the word. And he says, you are already clean. He is telling believers, your salvation is not in your fruit bearing. Your fruit bearing is a result of your salvation. You have been cleaned by the word, me, the living word. Go therefore and bear fruit. So number one, believe that Jesus is the true vine and that the Father is lovingly pruning his people. Number two, verses four through seven tells us this, bear fruit by abiding in Jesus, the true vine. Abiding is maybe not a word that we use all of the time, but to be in a living commitment to to be tied at the hip to in every way possible. We are abiding in Christ. That is how we are to bear fruit. Listen now to verses four through seven. Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a lot of good things. No. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Powerful words, encouraging words, terrifying words, all here in verses four through seven from Jesus. First, he says, abide in me. A living commitment in Jesus that will bear fruit. This is the primary message of what Jesus is telling his disciples in John 15. Abide, in fact, that word, abide in me, abide in Jesus, shows up eight times in seven verses. 
This is an idea that Jesus wants to get across to his people. My life is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. My identity is in Jesus. I have been grafted in by his grace. I have life and I have life abundant in Jesus. I am filled with his Holy Spirit and given power to follow after Jesus. He's the vine, I'm the branch, and I desire for it to be that way. And Jesus has given us many ways to be filled with his lifeblood. If you imagine the vine and the branches, that life-giving sap, Jesus has given us ways to remain tied and abiding in him, his word, first and foremost. Prayer, where we can talk to him and tell him what's going on in our life, knowing that he will teach us even as we speak to him. Worship. Whether that be together right here, right now, or that be on your own each morning, worshiping him. A church family and discipleship that is centered around the gospel and the good news of Jesus in his word and sharing that same good news with others. It was a powerful moment to see hundreds, thousands of believers yesterday sharing the good news and receiving the good news and sharing it with others who had not heard or who had never received Jesus before. When I think about our church, New City Church has six values that we are committed to. Now, if you have a thousand values and there's a thousand things in Scripture, you will wind up doing nothing. But we as a church have identified six things that we say these are the values that we are committed to. And I want you to think about these. I want to put them up on the screen for you to think about. This is both the abiding in Christ and the fruit that can come from the abiding in Christ. These are ways that we as a church particularly want to focus that we would be a church that values proclaiming grace, that we would be a church that values praying dependently, that we would be a church, despite our American culture, that would say we want to live sacrificially. What Christ has done for me, I want to do for others, that we would be a church that is growing in community. Not that we get together and play checkers, although checkers is great, but growing together around Christ, biblical community that we would be renewing the family. Yes, I mean the church family, but I specifically mean mommies and daddies and sons and daughters, that we would recognize that God's plan A is the family that he has made and that we would be multiplying disciples, that we would be a part of God's kingdom growing here on earth, not plus one, not plus two, but the Bible uses the language of multiplying, the great commission, in other words. Well, that's a lot. And Jesus reminds us in the very same sentence, apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot do these things apart from me. And so Jesus is lovingly saying to us, set aside the heart that is is automatically and originally in each one of us that says, I am going to rely on me, my plans, my ideas, my righteousness, my desires, And Jesus is saying, cease relying on yourself and begin to rely on me. Take yourself off the throne and place me on the throne. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Jesus says, you cannot bear fruit apart from me. But he also has said multiple times in John 14 and 15, he's saying that if you are in me, If you abide in me, if you believe in me, you will in fact do greater things than even while I have been here on earth. What what a stark difference. Without me, nothing. With me, 
more than you've even seen up to this point of my three years of walking with you here on earth together. And then Jesus says that those who do not abide in him and bear fruit will be thrown away and tossed in the fire. Wow, Jesus, I wish you could have left that one out. What does he mean? This is a a frightful statement from Jesus, which should absolutely be humbling for believers, and it should absolutely be a warning for unbelievers. Ezekiel 15 in the Old Testament gives us a little bit of insight going back to this illustration that Jesus is using of the vine. Ezekiel 15 tells us, if you're not a good gardener, tells us these facts. It says that a vine that does not produce fruit is useless. The wood in a vine, you can't do anything with it. You can't saw it into lumber and you can't build things with it. It is not good wood. The vine was made for one purpose, to bear fruit. It has no other purpose. And so literally in Ezekiel 15, they say, if the vine is not bearing fruit, it will be thrown in the fire and burned up because it is useless otherwise. And as we think about this burning image, we rightly make the spiritual connection to the very real fire of hell. It is not an imaginary place. It is not something that we tell our kids to scare them. It is what the Bible teaches in many places very directly, and it's what Jesus has in mind here as well. So the question here is who? Who is getting burned up? Does Jesus teach here that those who were saved, who have believed in him as personal Lord and Savior, if they become fruitless, will ultimately be cut off and tossed into the eternal fire of hell? Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say. Jesus doesn't just speak to this topic here. He doesn't even just speak to the topic in John here. So if we go back a few chapters, let's go to John chapter 6 and verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is God's will. This is the Father's will, that I shall lose how many? None of all those he has given me. Who's in charge? He is. But raise them up at the last day. John chapter 10. All of John chapter 10, in fact, is on this topic. And one of the most poignant moments is John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28. My sheep says Jesus, my people, my followers, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Who gives them eternal life? Jesus does. Did I give myself eternal life? No. Did I earn my eternal life? No. Jesus gives eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by whose power? God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Romans 8, beginning in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Who is the question now in verse 33? Jesus says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is no one. It is God who justifies. Verse 34, who is to condemn? The question Jesus is asking, the answer is no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one. No one. Nailed it, Isaiah. Now, there are many brothers and sisters in the household of faith, the capital C Church of God, who will tell you that they understand this passage to mean that a believer can lose their salvation. We love them, we respect them, they are still believers, and we will see them in heaven. I am not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but what I am telling you is that the Scripture is clear that if you are saved, you cannot lose your salvation. And in fact, if you think about all of us as people, every single one of us as believers, if we are fruitless, if we begin to sin, every single one of us, our salvation is in danger because I don't know about you, I sin a lot every day. And the scripture has not given us a metric for how bad are you. Well, now you've crossed the threshold and my grace no longer applies. Theology matters. And if I can say it to you this way, it ultimately comes down to the question of whose good works saved you in the first place. If it is based on your good works, well then by all means, your eternal security is absolutely in danger. But that's not what the gospel says. The Bible says that your salvation is built exclusively in the perfect work of Jesus Christ applied to you by his death and resurrection, received simply by faith. It is a free gift, and so your salvation is secure. We have eternal security because of what Jesus has done for us. That's important. So who then is this talking about, right? I asked that question a minute ago. I still haven't answered. Who is this talking about? Because Jesus is not unclear about the cutting off and the throwing into the fire to be burned. Specifically, Jesus is speaking about people who are in the church, who are a part of the church, who are sitting in a pew, who are taking part in the things that are taking place but have never believed in Jesus. They may have acted it out, they may have had some sincerity, but they never truly became believers. The example that flows through all of this begins with Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel was the covenant people of God, and yet when Jesus Christ came, they ultimately did what? They didn't believe. They rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they claimed the Pharisees' entire discussion was around the idea, we're a part of God's people because we're sons of Abraham. We're in the club. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It is not about external things. It is about a heart that believes in me. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. Give you another example, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples. Was he a disciple? Yes. Was he one of the 12? Yes. Did he do all the stuff? Yes. And yet his heart, we are told, never really believed in Jesus. In fact, his fruit was sour fruit. He betrayed Jesus. He sold out Jesus, literally. And Judas is in hell. He was never really a believer to begin with. There are many who are a part of the visible church, meaning, I see you, we're here, but who have never truly received Jesus as Savior. And so the warning, the threat is absolutely real. As sitting in my garage does not make me a car. You understand, right? Sitting in this bench does not make you a Christian. Going to a Christian school does not make you a Christian. Having Christian parents does not make you a Christian. You must place your hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sir, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Must I do good works in order to be saved? No. Will good works result from my salvation in Jesus? Yes. Sitting in a car doesn't make, sitting in a garage does not make me a car. Just sitting here does not make me a Christian. Further, should we as Christians relax? Oh, thank good, I'm off the hook. No. This should absolutely humble us as believers. The joy of knowing I am not condemned to hell and my salvation is based on Jesus, my fruit bearing is based on Jesus, but it should absolutely horrify us that we could have the Holy Spirit bring us from death to life, have Jesus have died on the cross for my sins, have a place in heaven secured for us, and my response is I don't care that much, and I'm not really that interested in bearing fruit. I'm interested in my plan, my agenda, my schedule, and my stuff. And Jesus rebukes that attitude within believers here as well. Third and finally, Jesus ends in verses 8 through 11 by saying, bear fruit to glorify the Father. Bear fruit to glorify the Father. Listen to verses 8 through 11. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Don't miss that. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. As we bear fruit to glorify the Father, we experience his love in a fresh way and are filled with joy, joy that is not defined by circumstances, joy that is defined by what the Father has done. All followers of Jesus can bear fruit. Men and women, boys and girls, old and young, we have all been given at the moment of our salvation the Holy Spirit and enabling us to display the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 tells us exactly what it is. Verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, listen to each one of these carefully, is love, 
is joy, is peace, is patience, is kindness, is goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I love the way Paul writes this. Against such things, there is no law. Do these a lot. No problems here. Lots of these things. As we think about love, this, this is parents. No, they're not perfect, but parents who desire to share the good news of the gospel with their children and to live it out in front of them, to teach them in daily family worship. It is hard, but it is love. It matters, and our parents love I think about our youth team and our kids team here at New City. These guys do not have a degree in youth ministry, but these men and women, they just love. You guys love our kids, and so you are willing to disciple them and to serve. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That is love. Thank you. Continue to do those things. When I I think about joy, I think about Gary Woodmancy. I think about the way that he has used his battle with Parkinson's, and every time you sit with Gary, he's going to communicate to you that God is faithful. It's been hard times, but my hope is in him. Gary shows joy every day. He's not perfect. He's, he's mostly perfect, but there's such joy in him. When I think about peace, I think about Heidi Rhodes. If you guys remember several months ago, her neighbor was struggling, suffering, ultimately passed away, but she brought peace into that house. She brought the peace of Jesus into her life. She invited us to partner with her to do that. Heidi lost her dad in the last several weeks, and what I see from Heidi is peace. Not that everything is okay, but that there's peace that comes from Jesus. Patience. I think about Sherry Choisey, who serves as the leader of one of our public elementary schools here. She has an incredible patience for the kids that she is caring for. It's not an easy job, as you know, with any kids, including my own. (laughs) You've got to have patience. But that's the fruit of the Spirit. I think about kindness. And and Jeanette Keene immediately comes to mind, who who has been the hands and the feet of Jesus to George as he has slowly passed on. She has shown the kindness that only comes from the fruit of Jesus. Goodness. I think about two families from our church who, prompted by the Lord, said, you know what, we just want to give above and beyond and and let it be used in some merciful way to impact people. And a family who needed mercy help, financial mercy help several months ago, who after having come out of that situation said, we want to give it all back now. We want to pay it forward so that somebody else can experience the goodness of God. And those merciful gifts are going to be used to help care for a woman in one of our public school partners who is going through cancer even now, and we're going to be able to help her financially deal with what she's going through. That is goodness. I think about faithfulness, and I think about Warner Fry, senior, the third. This guy is my Swiss army knife. He perpetually ignores all of the schedules of when he is supposed to come in. He just shows up every single week and fills a gap wherever it is needed. He is faithful because the fruit of the Spirit is in him, and he's filled, and he just wants to be faithful. And I think about our our prayer team. You guys are faithful. You come every Sunday to do the most important work in our church of praying dependently upon the Lord Jesus Christ, asking for his power because it's not about us. I think about our setup teams who are faithful. 
I think about our tech team who for two months, it was literally me and these two guys, they were the tech team, they were faithful when we couldn't even gather together. And through all the ups and downs and the challenges of the pandemic, I mean, we can have church without tech. We can do it with the lights off and no microphones and God will be equally glorified, but it is real nice to have power and electricity and sound and for us to have a live stream that people can watch at home. And so I'm thankful for the faithfulness of the tech team among many. We can and must bear fruit. We can encourage. We can live out hope. We can share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do it because Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know. Jesus says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The disciples hear that. Jesus is hours away from going to the cross and they still don't understand what he means, but they're about to see, aren't they? They're about to see that Jesus' love for you, that Jesus' love for us is so much that even though all of us as humanity have rebelled against God, have said, I don't want you, that Jesus came anyway, that Jesus took on human flesh and left the throne of heaven, lived the perfect life, and then died on the cross willingly, not because they killed him, but because he gave up his life. And on Good Friday, he died. And on Easter Sunday, he rose. And he made a way that anyone who believes in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, simply says, I am a sinner. I need you to save me, Jesus. It's not about what I can do. It is about what you can do. And I want you to be Lord. I'm tired of messing this thing up called my life. I want to do it your way. And I know I'm going to continue to make mistakes along the way for sure. But I'm looking forward to a place in heaven one day where there will be no sin. There will be no sadness. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true vine. We are the branches. If you are in Christ, abide in him. If you've never received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then today perhaps is the day that you say, I want to be tied into that vine as well. Let's pray together.